Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Pete Nichols, CEO of Hubdo. Pete, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are and what your background is? Uh, sure. It's great to be here. Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, so I run Hubdo from the UK. It's a global company that supports agencies, with an agency for agencies in the MarTech space. And that came about because, really, I have a desire to give good businesses an unfair advantage. And I figured the best way to do that today in the confusing world of changes in marketing and sales is supporting agencies to support many businesses. That we could do that effectively at a global scale. Excellent. So talk to me about your career journey, because I know it's been fairly varied and quite exciting. Give us a minute on that. Yeah, actually, I saw a slide just recently that we each have three major career changes over the span of uh, our lifetimes and the way it's running today. And when I saw that slide and then uh, looked at the person next to me and realized, oh, that's exactly what's happened. Because my background was originally in hospitality, straight out of, of high school and in college. It was into jobs in hotels and that carried on. It was great from a people side of view and people management. Most uh, of a crisis I remember in the hospitality times is when a full busload of Japanese turned up right in the middle of World Expo 88 in Brisbane. And uh, you could not get a hotel room in a city for love nor money then. And uh, we had to make sure that the, the Japanese tour guy didn't lose face, that he had nowhere to put his busload. So um, it shapes you. It was a good lesson in working with people. And uh, technology was always my thing, though, in the background. And so it, it wasn't until just after that episode in hotels, around uh, late 88, early 89, that I switched into the then early exploding PC era and uh, was selling PCs that led into accounting software, installing networking systems. And I found myself working for a networking integrator, which is now known as Dimension Data out of South Africa, but they're, uh, they're a global integrator. Isn't it as and, of known as NTT? Well, yeah, actually, part of NTT now. Very true. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that was a wild ride, really, through the 90s through to then joining a vendor. That was in 1996. I was recruited into Cisco in Australia and then had a 16-year career with Cisco, which was just fantastic. It's a right company, right time, amazing people. Still is, and I stayed on that journey with them to uh, lead us to the UK. It brought me here to England in '98 for, for 10 years, and then back to Asia Pacific in business development for uh, a further, however many years, and until I finally decided 2013 actually was my time to take the plunge. I had the epiphany moment, as you do, you see a change, and you decide I need to do something with us, and um, now's the time. So that was my jump into MarTech, so marketing technology. Back in 2013, it was at its early stage. It was exploding, but was just an early sign of what was going to follow. There was only a few hundred vendors in that space then, and now there's over 7,000. And uh, so that led to the creation of Hubdo. I left Cisco to create Hubdo as a marketing technology company to navigate the change that was going to come. So on that subject, you've obviously got a great background in channel. And speaking to Jay McBain last year, he was saying that more had changed in the previous 18 months than in the previous 36 years. What are the changes that you're seeing in the channel? Yeah, so channel, you're right. I was lucky that being at Cisco, it almost entirely goes to market through channel partners. So it's a very robust, well-respected partner program globally. And so living in that environment, I knew that I could only get my technology to market by really supporting that partner community well. And it worked the same the world over. I think the first major challenge that was rolling through as I was having my career change across to MarTech was the shift from vendors selling hardware to everything being eaten by software and eaten by the cloud. So businesses that have been traditionally a upfront sale, make most of the profit on the deal at the time that the capital equipment goes in and then there's some services revenue, we've seen that shift to be a subscription-based model. And so the um, monthly recurring revenue, the annual recurring revenue, that's kind of table stakes now for any software companies that have started in recent times. 
but it's still a major challenge, I think, for companies, including the channel, to come to terms with as a business model that uh, it can take quite a long time to recoup the cost of sale on a monthly revenue model and the churn risk is so much higher. I see that in the IT space, but I definitely see this. It's still a bit of a wild west in the marketing technology space. There's so many startups and they need to be so focused on that MRR. Establishing a channel model is really just part of their business. And that is still at an early stage of uh, companies that want to be a channel in that space. So agencies typically or um, sales consultants. In some cases, they're working with vendors such as Salesforce, where they're not really reselling the software, they're primarily selling their services. So it's where do you make margin? Where do you maintain long-term profitability? And that's in the marketing space is still quite separate from the IT realm. I see those two worlds haven't really come together yet. One of the things that strikes me is just how long it's going to take many businesses to make a profit, but they squander so much energy investment, time, resource on long, inefficient sales cycles with the wrong people. What can MarTech do to help them laser focus on those who can and will buy rather than those who could but probably won't or the wrong type of business? Well, I think it differs for the channel than it does for the vendor. Are you talking more vendor here, Marcus, or channel? I'm interested from the partner side to begin with. The vendor's got the advantage of volume if they have a lot of partners, but the partner's wasting so much energy and time and money and resource on long sales cycles with people who are never going to buy. Yeah, I think this comes down to just that sales capability within the, the partner community of needing to qualify well upfront and needing to have a strong sales process. I work predominantly with marketing agencies and establishing a sales process is usually the greatest need. When you see how do they respond today, opportunity will come across the desk. And so the tendency is to want to show your best colors early on and uh, pitch for the business as early as you possibly can. And yet the agencies that I see do better are the ones that know what a good fit customer looks like and have a sales process that allows them to slow it down just a little. It's not slowing down the closing of the deal necessarily, but make sure that you have some stages to know when a deal suits moving it to the next level. I see agencies where they pitch and basically propose the solution in the first meeting, and then they're scrambling to work out, well, how do I keep the momentum going with this customer? If it doesn't close right away, they've kind of already put their best case forward, and so they're in recovery mode. Or they are overcooking the solution early on. Customer has come to them for one thing because that company can do 50 things. They've kind of jammed that into the proposal and they're trying to close the larger deal. I think that agencies can learn a lot from the software model of this um, initial land, adopt, expand and renew rather than trying to win the major deal up front where the cost of sale is so high. This is really interesting. I mean, there's a medical maxim, which is prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Mm. And I see sales malpractice happening a lot in tech and in media, where people try and sell the ugly baby, the product or the service, instead of really spending time using that knowledge uh, that they have about the product and the service in order to be able to ask the tough, insightful questions. And also where they tend to do is get stuck in their place of comfort or assignment. And one of the things that you and I have been discussing and I've been discussing with Jay is how increasingly technology is being bought by the line of business and IT and marketing are being sidelined to some degree. And that people need to be able to speak different languages and understand the different pain points. So What's going on there? Because I'm not seeing a lot of that happening. I am seeing pockets on it, which is a relief, but it doesn't happen anywhere near as often as it should. I do think the conversation drops to the product quite often sooner than it should because the purpose for buying the product isn't to buy the product. Of course, it's to deliver on fixing the problems or resolving the challenges or hitting the goals that the business wants to shoot for. And 
if the conversation has started by talking around a technology or a platform too soon, then you just get bogged down in products and features and will this work with that and will it work with our existing gear and, and all of that. You can quickly get lost in the weeds of that conversation instead of really nailing early on what the business is trying to achieve. There's a good chance that the lines of business themselves are fairly dysfunctional in their alignment. That's sales <laughs> and marketing <laughs> for one. Well, I mean, you've seen plenty of examples of this, Marcus, right? Absolutely. I think you made a point earlier on, it's not just about aligning sales and marketing, but it's about creating that whole customer experience and then going into the partner experience as well. So what are technologies enabling businesses to do to create that frictionless, delicious, seamless experience so that when you go from one part of the business to the other, when you're selling as a team, then the customer and the partner feel like it's just a unifying journey? Well, I think we have a long way to go there, frankly. I think having a consistent customer experience, you look at uh, gold-class examples like the Amazon experience, where you hold it up and look at just how fixated it is on customer success. And uh, you know, I still see businesses are on a journey as to how much of it is about our goals and how much of it is about the customer's goals. The technology has allowed customers to kind of take the rule book away and they largely don't trust what marketing and sales and, and companies say about themselves anymore either. So giving a human experience to naturally support their journey rather than like a sales process is more of a buying process. How do you, you said the word frictionless, how do you provide a frictionless route for them to naturally follow so that they can solve the problem? And that's tough enough to do even when there is no partner involved. I think even for a company doing its own MarTech, its own sales tech, its own IT, just mapping out the customer experience end-to-end is quite a challenge. Because let's come back to sales and marketing because I think that's an area where to give a consistent experience, of course, you've got to be aligned there. But then after the, the sale is done and you've got the customer services team or whomever is looking after the customer after the fact, they've got to be just as aligned. So if we're struggling to align sales and marketing, just those two, when you bring in a third, it, it's like trying to plan a family holiday. If you've got a son and a daughter, you're going to have enough trouble trying to work out what music should be on the car when, you, when you're doing the long drive. You had one more child in there, exponentially less chance of, of agreeing. <laughs> um, so a question that I've been asking pretty much every day now, the opportunity comes up to, to ask it, is I'm in contact with a business, whatever the context might be. And I like asking, if I, aside from yourself, talk to a few other staff at your business and just ask them one question, why does this business exist? Are they going to give me an answer that is roughly similar to yours? Now, I haven't had a single business yet that has confidently said yes to that. Uh, I had one business owner the other day say, no, I think think we're pretty confident about what we do. So I had to ask it again and say, I'm not asking what you do. I'm asking why you do it. So this is the Simon Sinek start with why. I know this is a decade old plus since Simon's TED Talk, but it's super powerful in that how do you align sales and marketing, customer service, HR, all of the parts of the company to each other if they don't know collectively why they're all there? I've found that that's been the most valuable way to start the conversation now. Start with why, even if you just get a draft answer, I had uh, the good fortune to be at a um, key account planning meeting two weeks ago with a small company, a growing company in electrical distribution. We had sales and marketing and customer service and uh, technology specialists and the company owners around the table. By asking that question of why does this company exist, and it wasn't easily answered, said, do you want to spend the next 20 minutes or so just coming up with a draft reason? And just that one exercise alone, it actually took the feeling of the room to another level. There were um, things shared and discussed that I don't think had ever been done before. But it very quickly made sure that everybody around the table knew the purpose of why they're there and knew why the company exists. And from that point forward, everything we discussed about the customer experience, we kept coming back to this why. Now, I think if we hadn't defined that, 
we would have been arguing over the semantics of what a customer might want or not want through that journey. But the why just became a, a true north beacon in the room, which everybody could align to right away. And then we could work out how to align those departments. It's really important. I mean, when we put together our channel sales excellence program, that's the starting point. It's understanding why they're in business, who they're trying to serve, and then coming up with some form of common purpose. Because sales organizations that have common purpose tend to outperform those that don't. One of my favorite quotes is, ambiguity at the top creates politics at the bottom. And Mm -hmm. if the vendor and the partners aren't absolutely explicitly clear about why they're in business, then it's when they meet the customer, there's going to be confusion. And that then leaves them wide open to the competition, smart competition to come in and eat their breakfast. So I think one of the huge challenges that we see is not only lack of alignment and inability to walk away from the product or the service that they're selling, but also values. So what I'm really curious about is when you're working with your agency clients, what are you doing in terms of helping them recognize what their values are and why those are central to what they do and how they perform? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, the values, they increase in importance once you know why you have them. So by stating your why, I mean, this does come back to Simon Sinek's golden circle, that the next layer out is the how, and that that is where your value is set. And so if you haven't really defined those as a company, it becomes glaringly obvious when you've defined your why that you're then looking, well, how do we make that come to fruition so that we deliver on our purpose that uh, it's kind of a natural process that follows as, well, this is what we believe in. This is how we do what we do. So that how layer, there's a really nice process laid out, actually. There's, it's not written by Simon Sinek. It's written by uh, two in his team. David and Simon are the co-authors of this um, Find Your Why book. These are the process guys, right? Simon himself says, I'm not a process guy. But they've brought the expertise to develop a methodology that you can use for an individual or for a team, or for a whole company to discover your why. It is a discovery process where you're looking at how you do what you do and to uncover that. And so the Find Your Why process that's increasingly become a book that I've advised people to go and read. The chap that I mentioned that I spoke to last week who told me what he did but not why he did it is now reading that while he's traveling on holidays this week. We're going to have a a why conversation when he gets back. And I know naturally that that will then go to the values. I work really closely with one vendor out of Boston, which is HubSpot. I think as a partner of HubSpot, because we're a platinum partner of theirs, have been a partner now for four years, it's really clear what their why is. Here's a company that can align its staff very well because it's so crystal clear about why it exists to the level that I think is quite rare in many businesses. So HubSpot, as an example, have a stated purpose. Their purpose is to make the world more inbound. And what does that mean? It's so that business becomes more empathetic, more human in nature. So that's their their core reason for existing. And from that, they've developed their code, which is the letters H-E-A-R-T, spells out heart. That's the culture of the company. And so they use it to attract people. The, the why is kind of like the the light that the uh, the moth can be attracted to, and that it's a great environment when you get close to the, the company because it lives and breathes its culture, and so it attracts staff that fit well with that culture. It also attracts partners who believe in uh, ethos as well. So that makes the what you do so much easier when the core is aligned, not only the company, but you've got the partners aligned really well with the vendor that really brings a frictionless partner experience compared to complete misalignment of the classic software vendor who just wants to sell licenses and the channel partner who wants to sell services and they'll argue the toss over wallet share. I'm delighted that there is a move away from the drive-by shooting, which is how a lot of customers tend to feel that traditional software vendors have behaved. So let's talk a little bit about MarTech. 
because for many people, it'll be something that's unfamiliar. Talk to me at a high level, first of all. What is MarTech? Well, MarTech, I think the term was probably first coined by Scott Brinker. Scott started developing what he called the MarTech landscape back in 2011, actually. And that caught my eye when I was still at Cisco. This is interesting. I'm a guy who works in tech, and this is a whole other area of, of tech. And it's interesting. So over the years that ensued, Scott had no intention, I think, initially of doing that job of mapping out MarTech more than once. He mapped out around 150 logos onto a chart to explain marketing technology. The software firms that were coming about because of the need for uh, software in the marketing space were moving from magazines to online. And as soon as things were online and the internet, there was all pervasive. You need software to start managing social media, managing email. That is all software-based. And those are tools that marketers love and ruin as well. Your marketers tend to ruin everything when something works or beats it to death. So then you've got technologies to try and keep ahead of the curve of the things that haven't been beaten to a pulp yet to use, to give a customer experience, and also to monitor what's happening in your marketing. That classic phrase of, I know that 50% of my marketing budget is working, but I, I just don't know which 50%. So visibility of that, there's software for measuring. Now that has exploded since 2011, is now, well, conservatively, Scott Brinker, as he has reproduced this MarTech landscape every year or so, is now saying, well, it's conservatively 7,000 logos on that chart. It's become an eye chart you need a microscope to see. And that's just MarTech. There is a long tide that is sales tech and CX tech. They're related, but that whole software realm has developed almost in isolation from classic information tech. So this then brings me to another really important point. I think IT had its day to get to the chief executive's uh, role, and they missed it. I think marketing has pretty much done the same. And you and I have had conversations about how the changing landscape of leadership is going to occur. And we're both of a view that people like channel chiefs, the agents, and the agencies are likely to be where power really resides in the future. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, I do believe that we'll see these different players come together. They'll have to at some point. Technology is pervasive. And if you're going to manage the security over customer information, if you've got it in many different places across the organization, it makes it hard to then wrap a security layer around that, hard to implement GDPR. These things are difficult if it's spread. But you have got right now situations where the head of marketing has a higher technology budget than IT does. And those are like islands of technology, not only within a customer base, but also within the partner community. So the classic IT channel, the integrators that uh, I was in as, as a big part of my life for many years when I was at, uh, at Cisco, and we were bringing things like IP telephony and these other devices to the fore, and then security and firewalling. What's happened over in this smart tech space is a, um, a technology that has developed within a line of business, the line of business of marketing. And when you're sitting around the boardroom, those key players are so focused on what are we doing from a marketing perspective? How are we getting to market? How are we doing on our sales number? That's usually the loudest voice in the room <laughs> of, um, of hitting our, our goals. And then customer experience. Those lines of business players, they have technology at their disposal and want the agility and the freedom to be able to move quickly, swiftly, and provide a great customer experience. So if customer experience becomes a, a primary objective across those lines of business, and yet IT is being asked the same thing. This is why I believe those need to come together. But you've said it before, Marcus, that IT maybe kind of lost their real opportunity at board level to be hugely influential on the business at boardroom level, at that CXO position. Agencies, there with an opportunity, I believe. Agencies have the sight of the, the messaging and the brand of the company and the customer experience, as sales come into contact with the customer later and later in the sales cycle, marketing are carrying that relationship through so much further now. 
customers almost don't want to speak to a salesperson until you know, the, the last point that they have to. So with marketing, having that presence at board level, they have the opportunity to deliver for the other lines of business and then to bring the IT, the MSP players back in to be really well connected into the line of business objectives. Agencies, I think, are the prime opportunity uh, change agents. And by agencies, you mean what? Well, agencies in the classic sense would be your marketing agencies, those businesses that are engaged by companies to help them with their branding, help them with their lead generation campaigns, with lead nurturing, marketing automation. Those are generally the tools that marketing agencies are working with. They're often collaborating with folks who are helping with the technology in the sales process. But generally, the organizations that help in sales process don't tend to call themselves agencies. They are sales consultants or sales specialists or sales training and sales enablement, those sorts of players. Agency seems to be a word that is just largely reserved for that that marketing domain. Interesting. What I'm seeing more and more of is as technology becomes more complex, the vendors seem to be individually less and less important and have less and less contact with the end user customer. And increasingly, the systems integrators, the MSPs, and in the case of MarTech, the agencies are the ones who are most likely to be touching the end user. How do vendors need to adapt to this? Because it strikes me that there is an illusion of control and their senior management are all about trying to control the sales process, trying to control the buying cycles, trying to control when revenues are going to come in. But they're inevitably more impotent than they ever have been. So what needs to change in terms of their thinking? And is that going to happen with the current generation of leaders? I think there is a difference there between what's happening in the vendor space in the technology infrastructure side. Because I think absolutely you've got uh, much more customer touch and uh, relationship management going on within those MSPs, within those, those integrators. And so you want a uh, partner management ecosystem tools, which I think on, on previous podcasts you've interviewed folks, Marcus, who specialize in that, that partner resource management side of things, a partner as opposed to customer. So I think tools like that help bring that ecosystem together where you've got many, many more partners. I know when in my Cisco days, we had thousands of partners just in the UK alone. Whereas you look at a global vendor like HubSpot, where it's a few thousand partners for the whole world. So at the moment, they're not dealing with hundreds of thousands of partners there. The problem is relatively smaller. And what you described around the customer touch in the MarTech space, there is uh, still very much a direct vendor touch there. The partners have a role to play, but it's been interesting to see the route to market develop. In the IT realm, there is a classic resale model that is so well established that the vendor provides the technology and the role of the channel is to mark that up and on-sell it. In the MarTech and sales tech space, it's uh, practically the opposite, where virtually all software is bought directly from the vendor. You buy your Salesforce from salesforce.com. You buy your HubSpot from HubSpot. There's very few examples of where customers are buying their software from the channel. There's uh, almost always they're buying it from the software vendor. And then the channel's role is to kind of sit within that ecosystem as a value-added player, not necessarily marking up any of the software. In fact, it's almost more like an affiliate model of the way that the channel partner earns their revenue. So it does mean that the vendor has a direct relationship with the customer. So does the partner. Coordinating that, that's where I think the uh, the difficulty is today because you've got one customer faced by a vendor and a channel partner, but the vendor and the channel partner typically have different priorities. The vendor is a software vendor. And end of the day, it's about selling software licenses and really driving customer success and customer retention and cross-sell and upsell on the software that they produce. The channel partner is more of an integrator They are focused on the needs of the customer and will introduce the concept of software licenses where that is needed to to solve the problem. And it's not just about one piece of software. The average number of applications 
in a MarTech stack is greater when an agency is involved than when you're working with a primary vendor. There's a, in the order of around 30 to 40% more applications will be part of the stack because the partner isn't really targeted with selling any particular software license over another. Their focus is on the customer, a software stack and services. That's where it diverges from a software vendor who is measured on Wall Street by how many seats they've sold and what their churn rate is. So you talk about a two-tiered distribution model. Is that what you've just been describing? Not in that context. I haven't touched on two-tier there. I believe there really is an emerging need for that to appear. So right now, the classic way that software is sold in MarTech is either direct from the vendor or one-tier channel. So it may not be a resale model, but maybe that one tier is just the channel partner, the agency has a role to play. So it's only one tier in the sense of vendor to channel facing the customer. What two tier is, which any of the folks in the MSP environment and from IT background would likely be well aware that IT has for decades often been related to hardware as well as software. And so shipping hardware, you've got to have warehouses. You need time and place ability to meet the needs in countries anywhere in the world. So the Global Technology Distribution Council represents a suite of large operators that are the two-tier distributors in IT. Now, that model is well established in IT. I think that is also method of business that is doing a little soul searching around where that leaves them with the emergence of the cloud. You don't put a cloud in your warehouse, it just floats in. So um, in that model, distribution, I think, is generally thought of by default as just a way to ship product. And I think it misses the point of where the best distributors are value-added distributors. And they're operating a two-tier model for a vendor, let's say like a Cisco, where hardware or software, a combination of the two. To get that technology to market, you can sell it directly, although often Cisco doesn't. It's usually through a one-tier integrator, a channel partner, like a dimension data. But you can really only directly manage high-touch relationships with a, a set of premium partners in any single geography. So the two-tier distribution, you have a, a distributor that represents thousands of smaller resellers. And that gives you not only the scale, but the value that distributor can bring. They're handling multiple products and they have a channel base that they're managing almost for the vendor. That doesn't really exist yet in MarTech. In MarTech, when I talk to the both the vendors and the agencies in that space and talk about the concept of two-tier distribution, there's a lot of head-scratching goes on. And yet we've been piloting a model. There's several software vendors that are uh, more forward-thinking on this. One is called Pandadoc. Some folks may know it. It's well-established for document management. It comes out of California. And uh, it allows you to not only do proposals, but HR documents, all sorts of uh, document flow and sign-off within your CRM. Uh, generally, it's integrated with your HubSpot, Salesforce, whatever other software you're using. Pandadoc are working with Hubdo on a two-tier distribution model where we have a group of agencies who we're nurturing as a community and we're making it more um, of a frictionless buying model for First of all, those agencies to know when Pandadoc is a great fit and then sourcing that software through Hubdo. So in that sense, we are, we're like a distributor with no warehouse. We're providing the scale for Pandadoc. We have a focus group of partners that Pandadoc themselves within a software vendor. It's just expensive to allocate dedicated headcount to a channel. We have a group of partners there that uh, we're nurturing them not just for Pandadoc, we're nurturing them for multiple vendors, but it means that we have a different economic model. We can have a relationship to support those partners to grow and make it much easier for uh, for Pandadoc to bring their newest and greatest product to market through them. That's at its early stage, Marcus, but it's certainly as an experiment so far, those that are at the leading edge of uh, being open to new things are finding that, uh, yeah, there can be a better way. You don't have to go with the status quo. One of my favorite definitions of a pioneer is a man with arrows in his back. So talk to me about some of the teething problems that you've had setting up this two-tier distribution model and what have you learned? Yeah, it's a good point. 
probably primary issue with teething problems in this model, and it's still very much an issue today, and I think will be for some time, is with these thousands of software vendors sprouting up, they are startups on their own rapid execution path. They need to hit their goals of how many customers are we going to get on to hit our different funding rounds. So often that's driven directly into the base that they want to attract. It's a direct sales model. Often they won't go through the channel first because that channel takes some time to build, train, and motivate. So the channel tends to come as a bit of an afterthought. That is reflected in the build of the software as well. Often the software is engineered just to go straight to the task of doing what the customer needs. And then you face the challenges of, oh, okay, now uh, we've got these channel partners. We need the ability for them to log in as well. We need the ability for the channel partner to add value in the customer's environment. Many software platforms and the providers that I talk to are not even engineered for that first level. So I'll give Pandadoc as an example. It's a fantastic product. If a customer of an agency buys Pandadoc directly from Pandadoc, they get a great platform for doing documents. But by default, the agency cannot log into that workspace at all. So then you're faced with technical challenges of do we allocate an extra free seat for the agency partner? How does that work? And for the agency partner, if they have 20 clients that are in that environment, teething problems there are that's now 20 separate logins and 20 separate passwords potentially. So there's a lot of friction when you are engineering a partner model into the software as an afterthought. That's where it's really hard to move on that until the software is ready. So what advice would you give to startup moving into scale-up in terms of building the partner into their roadmap? That's a great question. I think the first is to think about multi-tenant. Now, multi-tenant has first come from that cloud environment where you've got a shared piece of infrastructure like a single server sliced up to be used by multiple users. Years ago, businesses would freak at the thought of, you're not going to put my data on the same computer as somebody else's, where, of course, that now just happens all the time. It's in the cloud, and we seem to take the cloud word as a, as a good word that indicates, yeah, multi-tenant isn't really that all their data is mixing with other customers on the same hardware. So when a, a vendor is beginning their product is to think ahead of time of how is multi-tenant going to work in this environment? How can we ship what our product does, then be able to ship a group of instances of that product? How could we provide 10 different seats of this to like 10 different companies in a multi-tenant context, so it's all, all that data is separated, but you have a higher level management layer where the agency can come in and see all of those instances, manage that as an estate. Vendors that are getting that right, HubSpot have done a great job of that. If you're a HubSpot partner, you can see the consoles of all of your customers and you can move between them to whatever level of permissions have been granted. So that's multi-tenant, really well engineered right out of the box. So I'm having calls with technology vendors about how to engineer their software. And often with multi-tenant, it's where it starts. And to allow for two-tier for the likes of a hub do, it's just an extra level of multi-tenant. It's just a two-tier structure instead of one. But without that multi-tenant mindset, it's just one piece of software per customer and no real architecture wrap for it. Given Gartner's prediction that by 2026, 90% of tech will be sold through the partners, it strikes me as making a good deal of sense to start in the same way that Ocado, the online supermarket, was built deliberately as a, an internet-ready operation versus Tesco.com, which was kind of like the Frankenstein's monster bolt-on. And the user experience that you hear from Ocado customers versus at Tesco.com or having been a customer of theirs, the substitutions aren't great on Tesco. Ocado, they're often better than the ones that you originally ordered. You get end-of-shelf-life products from Tesco, whereas with Ocado, everything lasts for days or weeks because it's all fresh, because it's engineered deliberately, intended to operate like that. So in terms of recruiting people into a startup, when they're just about to hit that curve of the hockey stick, who do they need to have on board before that inflection point in order to ensure 
that they can scale without the wheels coming off? I think it's a mindset that you're looking for, Marcus, in terms of who you hire. Because in all of this, the technology shifting from sold directly to being sold through the channel, I think within all of that, you've got this dimension of recurring revenue. And this is such a fundamental shift for businesses to make that change from let's get the sale and then we'll pass it across to customer support. So the needs of a customer support team, you only think a few years back to massive call centers and how much emphasis there was on providing great experiences out of call centers. A lot of those still exist, but to give a great customer experience, to give the fantastic fresh food through Ocado and to have a fresh food type experience with a contact center, this is where I've seen like uh, banks in Australia moving the contact centers back into, into the country and making a point of saying all our call operators are in Australia. And so the focus is on that delicious customer experience, whether you're having an Apple or whether you're calling customer support. But uh, I read a, um, a fantastic book, which uh, is really well aligned, I think, to the types of people that you want to attract here. It's... Um, I don't know the name of the author in front of me. The, the book is called Customer Success. And I'll get that for you before we uh, go today. It's a book that uh, has several authors, actually. I think there's three on the cover. So it comes from the time when salesforce.com had the realization that their business, whilst it was growing wildly successfully around 14, 15 years ago, suddenly realized that actually, if they didn't do something different, the business wasn't going to survive. The authors are Nick Mehta, M-E-H-T-A, Dan yep. Steinman, and Lincoln Murphy. And I highly recommend it. Fabulous book. Yeah, I think that's uh, because you asked the question about who to hire. And I think that book really captures well the mindset of what you're looking to hire. Because it's not about customer support, it's about customer success. And so a support team, instead of thinking of a post-sales mindset, has to become a pre-sales mindset continually because you're always reselling. You're always needing to deliver a service that the customer won't churn. And moving into this the subscription world where, where subscription is eating everything from your shavers to your grocery, that uh, you need different mindset of people on that. Because uh, there's another really good book in this uh, realm, which I think is by Matthew Dixon, called The Effortless Experience. This goes well with customer success in that you want to make it very simple for your target customer to deal with the organization. And of course, why do we give great customer experience? We want to create delights, right? We want the people on our team that are going to deliver so well that you've got advocates talking on behalf of the customer. And I think what the effortless experience highlights well is that, that all things are not equal as you move across the, the timeline of the, the customer. Early on, when the product is being delivered, you want to give a great experience around that. But then after the product is delivered, there's still the need for some potential support to be delivered as well. But the advocates don't come from the post-sales side. You deliver a fantastic product experience up front. And uh, like I could go to a great Thai restaurant tonight, Marcus, and uh, message you on Friday and say, oh, Marcus, you've got to try this Thai restaurant. It's fantastic. It's the best I've had in years. By you going along to that and enjoying the time, letting me know, yeah, that was great. I've kind of almost taken ownership of that restaurant a little bit. I get a little bit of the uh, kudos because I introduced you to that. So a great experience at the restaurant. I'm going to talk about that. Bad experience at the restaurant. Yeah, I'll probably tell a few people as well to avoid it. But that's very different to the post-sales experience. So um, my wife ordered a makeup brush about a week ago and uh, she wanted it for an outing on Friday evening, ordered it on Amazon, blinding delivery. The thing arrived, it felt like five minutes later. I think it was like first thing the next morning. And that was fantastic. She opened it up, but found that a few bristles were missing on the brush and therefore it was unusable. So onto the amazing Amazon customer support. They said, great, we'll have that straight to you. And they did. It arrived the next day. That experience was delivered by a customer support rep and they couldn't have really done any more other than sending maybe you know, cards and flowers. They couldn't have delighted more in the way that they instantly reproduced that product. But that's not where your advocacy comes from. This, Helen isn't going to go out and say to somebody, oh, you should go and order this on off Amazon because when the first one showed up bad, 
they replaced it so quick. Like that's not where the advocacy comes from. So the job of the post sales team, the job of that customer support team is trying to avoid people bitching and moaning about the service. We tend to advocate negatively from a post sales experience, but customer success upfront is about delivering a fantastic product experience. And that's where word of mouth comes from. I think this all comes back to your question of who to hire. People with a pre-sales mindset, people with a customer success mindset, people who realize that you've got to get the product fantastically right because even the fact that my wife had to call Amazon, she was already feeling negative. Would have preferred to never have to call them. So you're on the back foot straight away. I interviewed a friend of mine from the States, Amy Woodall, who is the VP for customer success for the Illinois franchise. Mm -hmm. And she has a wonderful quote, which is, the customer's not always right, but when they're wrong, it's often our fault. And she's really focused on preempting problems, looking at patterns, making sure that the customer success team is sharing information, sharing lessons learned, so that if there is a problem, then not only does everybody know about it and is aware of it, but what they're doing is they're preemptively contacting customers and saying there may be a problem with this. Let's deal with it up front so it doesn't turn into a crisis. And I think that mindset, because I think customer service really, in most people's minds, means customer complaints. And that's a mistake because I believe people have lost the essence of an understanding of what service is. Service does not mean servitude. Service is about making sure that you are helping other people get their needs met. And this is where that delicious customer experience comes from. Having spoken to Kieran Cron over at HubSpot, the way he treats his partners, they are his customers. They're his best customers. And Even though there's an end customer after that, he knows that by treating the partner and serving the partner well, then that experience is passed on. And I know you know Kieran as well. So I'm really curious about this whole issue of service. Talk to me about how you see service working in this two-tier model uh, that you're talking about. Because I know that what you're doing at HubDo is very innovative. How are you making sure that service is optimized and it does feel delicious for those partners who may otherwise be left by the wayside or largely ignored. Well, so that's a good question on passing that through because the ultimate end user is the customer of the agency, of the partner. So what's vital is that the partner is first their own best customer. They're using these tools. They are comfortable with these tools. And so they can win the customer's confidence by showing them, well, here's what we do with it. Here's how we do this. Where it doesn't work well at all is when a, a partner is pitching something that they only really know through brochureware. Nothing beats that firsthand experience. So you want inquisitive folks who get hands-on and they know enough about the product to be able to speak well about it. And they're proactive. I think uh, you mentioned Kieran Crone. And yeah, he's a great partner manager for HubSpot. The difference between still all service, but the difference between the mindset of service that you described of uh, avoiding the problems up front versus reacting to them really well after the fact is a proactive versus a reactive mindset. And we all know that we've worked, worked in businesses where you know there's folks here, they just are waiting for crisis to hit because they are at their best when they can rescue the situation. And those are fantastic people to have well, that doesn't tend to earn customer loyalty anymore, coming in as the white knight and fixing it. The loyalty is more by advising ahead of time. So it's a proactive nature. It's somebody that when you're not busy with an inbox that's uh, overflowing, as you quickly get yourself onto what am I proactively doing to avoid situations for my customers. And I'm not sure if you can turn someone reactive into someone proactive, Mark, because it just seems that folks have strength. It's a different mindset. And uh, now the call is for the proactive mindset because the uh, after the fact just doesn't cut it anymore. I had a client, Charles Coburn, who when he was very early on in his lobbying career, his boss said, Charles, you're good in a crisis. You create crises to be good in them. And I think there's some of that in uh, people who are reactive. 
So I want to finish on this one question. You've obviously developed quite a lot of scar tissue over the years. If you had your golden ticket, you could go back and you could advise the idiot 23-year-old Pete on what not to do. What advice would you give him? Actually, what I would do if I could open a time portal and slip something through, I'd actually slip through the Find Your Why book because uh, it was many years on before I actually sat down. I'd actually heard about Find Your Why and I thought, yeah, that sounds really interesting, but I, I didn't make myself sit down and actually do it. And I find that a lot of folks have done that. So I would actually send that book through and I'd say, figure out 23-year-old you, why? Because I've since learned that everything that really shaped who I am and what matters had already happened by the time I was 23, but I just hadn't put it together as to what my focus is. Being able to mine that and realize that why I exist and why Hub do exist is to give good business an unfair advantage because I really want ethical companies to support us. And it comes from a couple of stories from growing up. My father was bankrupt around the time that I was born, so we sort of grew up through that environment, nicely funded by uh, by my uncle, which uh, we since found out later was kind of financed by a string of brothels. So (laughs) (laughs) those are quite impactful things to learn as you're growing up. So it's critical to me that we solve this. So that would, in answer to your question, it would be find your why, realize that it's about helping good businesses. And I would have avoided making a bunch of decisions of jobs that I took or things that I did that weren't part of that. And so my heart just wasn't in it. Fair enough. And final question then, you've mentioned several books. Are there any podcasts or TED Talks or channels that you suggest people listen to or watch? Uh, Well, yes, I think uh, yours. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that Tenor in the post um, but uh, I think because uh, I do get a lot of value out of books I know I asked you recently about a book that would help a marketing person start to get a greater mind share with the role of the salesperson it's just such different roles and I find marketing agencies aren't necessarily comfortable in that sales arena coming up against the sales manager so um, the book that you suggested, which is The Contrarian Salesperson by Jody Williamson, yeah, I would echo. On audio, it's only a two-and-a-half-hour read. So you know, it's, it's very easy for a marketing person to get a little bit of uh, sales speak. There's eight good lessons in there from Sandler that I think uh, are good ones to learn. That's definitely uh, one that I've been recommending of late. And, um, and I think for the longer plan here of where this is, is going and some of the crisis that we face, is um, The Future of Capitalism by Paul Collier. I think that nicely spells out what we've done by ending up with our pension funds holding the courts over these companies that run the planet and uh, the focus on the quarterly mindset that is needed and how CEOs get sacked if they don't <laughs> meet those objectives. So that, that's undermined what was good in those terms. Keep an eye out for my podcast. I'm going to record it on Thursday, so it'll probably be released Friday or Monday with a guy called John Thor Sigurdsson. Wow. His thoughts on that are just fantastic. I cannot wait for that. Pete, thank you so much. This has been really insightful, very entertaining, very interesting, and I look forward to doing this again. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. It's a pleasure. Good to see you. See you soon. So Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. If you have questions, then please get in touch with me at mkalki at sandler.com. Pete, how can people get hold of you? Pete at hubdo.com. Find me on LinkedIn, Pete Nichols at hubdo. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Happy selling. Bye.